Is it well with your soul? I do hope it is. That really is a precious treasure for God's people, isn't it? That it can be well with your soul. That's that's the, the level of peace that's just being at rest, being whole. And we can have that. I hope you do. And if not, I hope you can find it in the Lord. And I hope you can find it in his word. He offers that to you. God gives shalom, shalom, perfect peace to the one whose mind is stayed on him. That really is much the thrust of what Paul is trying to do. I think that's the concern of any pastor as he looks around at people on Sunday. Certainly what he wants to See, that's certainly a concern when he doesn't see someone or he doesn't sense that. He wants it to be well with people. That's why Paul is writing. Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed about some false teaching that's come in. It's shaken them up. It's made them not well on the level of their soul. Paul has a very pastoral concern in this chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You can turn there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you are a younger sibling, or perhaps uh, you have a younger sibling that you've been uh, on the giving end of this, maybe you've had the experience, if you're the younger, of being deceived by an older brother or sister, before my brother James was in school. Okay, so don't start assuming things about his intelligence. I'm quite certain this was before he was in school. I remember a time when I found it pretty humorous and advantageous to exchange my dimes for his nickels. My genius plot was to advertise my nickels as uh, a larger coinage than his puny dimes and to kind of play down how weak and miserable and, you know, they're, they've got... Ridges on the edge. Who wants that? And playing up all the glorious features of a wonderful nickel just so I could weasel five cents out of it. I don't think it worked very well or very long until I'm sure someone enlightened him about my tactics. But my false advertising cast doubt on really just financial reality. Dime is actually worth more than a nickel, five cents more. In that case, it really just deceived him entirely into believing something that in the realm of, you know, I've got $2 to my name, that's actually quite harmful to him. In the spiritual realm, though, sometimes false doctrine casts doubt on salvation realities. And that's what's happened in Thessalonica. Someone came in and said, the day of the Lord is at hand. And it's really not just shaken them For a time, it's actually cast doubt on another doctrine. It's cast doubt on salvation, and it's made them question things about salvation. 
So if you ever wonder about the importance of true eschatology, if you're tracking with me about the terms, the doctrine of the end times, it really does matter because it has a chain reaction onto other doctrines. The situation that Paul is writing into, he visited the church, uh, the city of Thessalonica, and there were people saved, and he gathered them into a church and discipled them for a time, but he was chased out by a violent mob after just a few weeks, perhaps a few months. And he wrote back from just a few cities away, a few days, weeks later, to see that these people were doing well, that they were established, that they didn't abandon the path of truth and um, the path of scripture that he had set them on. And he found out that they were indeed doing well. So he writes this second letter, relieved, but also addressing a few problems, helping them address it. The ongoing problem of persecution that didn't go away, that mob was still there, uh, leveraging everything that they could against these Christians to try to get them to shut their mouths about the gospel, to try to get them to return to a previous way of living. They need help. And Paul's trying to help them overcome some of the challenges that would come up with persecution. But then he turns in chapter two to the problem of a false teaching. We request you, brethren, that Second Thessalonians 2 verse 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then he builds an extended argument, which if you've been here the last few weeks, we've developed some of that, saying that the day of the Lord has not come because this is what has to happen first before Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. He's really pointing them back to what he had taught them as a reliable source of revelation. He had already taught them these things. If you look down in verse 15, the end of our text for this evening. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Look back at verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? It's kind of calling it back to their minds. Remember, I taught you the truth. Don't forget it. It's reliable. It's from God. It's really pointing them to what he had taught them in order to communicate this message of don't be alarmed. It's not true. Here's why. But here in verse 13, our text for this evening, Paul gets to the root of the danger of this doctrine by bringing them all the way back to the basics of salvation. How are the end times related to my salvation? Well, Paul sees a connection here. And he really intends to ground this church in the truth of God's having saved them. It's really the, the antidote to the deception that's been introduced here in this church. There's great security in salvation from sin and judgment. Not only security from God's wrath or fear of persecution, but security even from false doctrine. It may come, but as you deal with it according to truth, there's security. And Paul's communicating this message in verses 13 through 15, that when lies leave you fearful, Christian, remember that God chose you to salvation. 
when lies leave you fearful, remember that God chose you to salvation. There's a lie out there about Christ's return after the great tribulation. And Paul says, don't forget God saved you. Don't be fearful. Remember, God chose you. It's really a comforting truth, a joy, hope-giving truth, really a life-stabilizing truth that we should turn to when error comes. And Paul develops this idea of God chose you to salvation in four ways that I want us to see tonight, starting in verses 13 through 15, kind of the fact that God chose you, the way that he did this, the reason that he did this, and how you should respond. So let's read 2 Thessalonians 13 through 15. After speaking about those who will be judged for their lawlessness, their unwillingness to believe the truth, Paul turns to his readers and he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. When lies leave you fearful, remember, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's the central idea that he's communicating to these people that he knows are Christians. So first, the fact of it. When lies unsettle you, Remember that your your salvation is actually a cause for great rejoicing. We should always give thanks to God for you. I think we can take for ourselves, we should praise God when we see him saving other people. Paul's doing that here. He says, we should, we ought to, we're obligated to, because God has obviously saved you. Paul really labored for this his whole life. He labored to see people come to Christ. So when he saw it, it was a great joy to him. And he praised God for that because, of course, the results are always God's. So when you see the work of God to save someone, it has to have been God. It always is. So thank him. He deserves thanksgiving for it. Do you thank God for saving others? Do you thank God for saving you? It's good for us to meditate on The fact that God saved me from sin and judgment and destruction of my own way. If God spared you from that in any way, that's good to think on. That I was lost. Now I'm rescued. That will make us thankful. That will make us humble. We should also praise God for counting us as his beloved. What does Paul call them? We give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. He's reminding these people of a reason they have to rejoice. There's kinship. There's camaraderie in the family of God. There's genuine delight from God in his children, beloved by God. Do you believe that, that God looks at you as beloved? It might not always be how you feel. You might feel dirty. You might feel rejected. But that's not what the Bible teaches about how God looks at his children. Brethren, beloved. 
by the Lord. Of course, like any children, we can get ourselves into sin, but God still loves us. I believe as we delight in our salvation and as we think on it, the more we meditate on the gospel and the fact that the gospel reached us, we will have greater delight in our salvation, greater delight in the gospel message, and greater zeal to proclaim it to others. I think you see that in the Apostle Paul's life. So when lies unsettle, you don't forget that you, you're saved and you can rejoice about that. To be saved is to have reason the rest of your days to rejoice, and that will settle you when lies assault you. So when lies leave you fearful, remember that God chose you to salvation and praise him for it. But second, when lies unsettle you, remember your salvation is the gracious work of God. And there's really here in this verse, a short in a short statement, really a grand scope of salvation. He moves from what we would call the doctrine of election to the doctrine of sanctification to truth about conversion. We should always give thanks to God for you, brother and beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. That's God's choice from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, uh, positional or initial sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. That's When you believe, when you called on the name of the Lord, you could call that conversion, repentance, and faith. But what's in here? Well, God chooses some unto salvation by his sovereign grace. It's really the heart of what Paul's saying in these verses. And the reason they have no need to fear this false teaching, because God chose you. Ephesians 1, Paul is very clear. that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chooses, God chose before he made anything. Scripture is very clear about this, but nowhere is it really explained for us why or how. It's really just explained in terms of being entirely from God's grace. It's really right for us to speak of this as the secret counsel of God to do this. And how Paul is speaking about this, he's intending to minister comfort to these people. Their salvation is on firm footing. Their their rescue from sin is sure because God's choice was in eternity. It's rooted all the way back then in the gracious choice of God. And if God chooses someone to salvation, will he fail in rescuing them or in preserving them? The reason Paul knows that they are God's elect is not because he can read the mind of God, because no man can. It's because he sees the obvious fruit of salvation in their lives. That's the burden of this whole letter. He's pointing them back to what he sees in them. Second Thessalonians 1, 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. This is the evidence that Paul has to say this with such authority, that God chose them. Because if they're saved, they're God's chosen. It's the only way he knows. And God will not fail to preserve those that he chooses to save. And usually, 
we're going to have a concern about this doctrine. It, it centers around something like, well, what if, what if this person isn't one of God's elect? That's just not for us to know. That's not how Scripture talks about this. Scripture's crystal clear that God chooses, but God also is genuine and truthful in extending the offer of salvation when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no contradiction between these two things. And we ought to be faithful to proclaim this to all. But for Christians, everywhere election is mentioned, God's choice, it's always two believers for those who clearly are believers. This is really what election should do. It should make us humble. It's not for pride. It's not for bludgeoning people with. It's for praising God that he would save even one person. And it's for comfort. That's what Paul is doing. We should give thanks to God for you. Brother, you have no need to fear because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And look at your life. Did God accomplish salvation in your life? Yes, he did. Is he ever going to go back on that? No, his purpose is rooted in eternity. Don't fear. When lies unsettle you, remember your salvation is the gracious work of God. God does choose some unto salvation. Paul also says God sets men apart at salvation by the Spirit. He talks about sanctification. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Someone wrote about sanctification this. In sanctification, God, working especially by the Holy Spirit, separates the believer unto himself and makes him increasingly holy. And I don't want to use language that goes over our head, but this is the language of Scripture, sanctification. When we use that word, we often refer to progressive sanctification. So sanctification over time, where increasingly we grow to be like Jesus. Increasingly, we grow in maturity, progressive sanctification. But there are also times when Scripture talks about sanctification in ways that are clearly not progressive. It's clearly a one-time thing in the past. One instance of this is 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Paul is saying, don't sin this way. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writes to a church of Christians, and he says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Ordinarily, we think I'm justified and then I grow, I'm sanctified. But here Paul reverses it. You were sanctified. You were justified. God set you apart. There's a, what we could call positional or initial sanctification. Significantly, you're set apart for God. You're set apart from sin. 
If you want an image, I believe this is part of what's being pictured for the people in Israel when God is setting aside certain implements in the tabernacle and in the temple for special use so that the people would learn the difference between the sacred and the profane, the things that are holy and the things that are common. When God saves someone, he sets him aside as holy. Are not Christians called saints, holy ones? Do you feel like a holy one? Doesn't matter. God calls you one because he sanctified you at salvation. And now he is continuing to sanctify you. There are two aspects of sanctification. I believe Paul is speaking about initial sanctification. When God sets you apart from sin, this is related to God freeing you from the dominion of sin, sin having no more power over you. When God justifies you, he takes away the punishment of sin. He declares you righteous and innocent, so you're not guilty before the law. But when God sanctifies you and by union with Jesus Christ, with him in his death and resurrection, you are freed from the reign and tyranny and power of sin. You are dead to sin. Sin is still, you could say, in you. It is, you could say, alive in you, but you are dead to sin. This is certainly always an argument for avoiding sin. Don't you can't, Christian, accept the presence of sin in your life. Because when you do, you're acting as though you have not been set apart from it, that you have not been freed from the dominion of it. And that's just not true. Unless you are not saved. But it's not just that God sets apart from sin to God, to himself. What else does Paul describe really here in the whole scope? He doesn't mention everything about salvation, all the terms that Scripture uses, He, but he also does talk about faith. God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God converts men at salvation by belief in the truth. And here we would speak about conversion, faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin, always together, never separate. When you turn from sin, you turn to God in faith. And the truth of the gospel. Isn't this humbling? To realize that this is all God's work. We don't add anything to it. We were dead. He made us alive. It's right for us to be humble about this. And what we're aiming at here is not just the fact of it in our past, but progress in it, faith in the truth. Has your faith in the truth ever grown? Have you ever grown stronger in belief in the truth? Have you ever become more separate from sin, more hating of sin? God does the work at the beginning to set us apart, but then we do grow so it becomes ever more real in our lives. How you started is how you should continue. That's really the, the teaching all over the New Testament. If you want to reference there, you could write down Ephesians 4, 22 through 40, 24. 
You didn't learn Christ in sin. You learned as you put off the old man and were renewed and put on the new man. And that really is the character of your whole life is repenting of sin, being renewed and putting on Christ likeness. This is how we grow. Do you want growth in holiness? Do you want growth in understanding of the truth? This is really the, the call that's put out to a Christian is to grow in likeness to Christ. Salvation is God's gracious work, and it should fill us with thanksgiving to him. And remembering God's work in this way will calm your fears because it really opposes the lies of fear. What if I miss this? What if this? What if that? Well, there's truth that you bring into your mind, truth that is reliable. But third, when lies unsettle you, remember that your, your salvation is assured of a perfect outcome. And this is why God chooses to salvation. It's a gracious reason. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, or to the gaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe when Paul says, it was for this he called you through our gospel, He's referring to what he said before. It was to salvation that God called you. Not only did he choose you in eternity, but in time, as the gospel was preached in your hearing, he's telling them, as I, Paul, called you externally to repent and believe, God called you internally. Here's another big doctrinal term. We would call this God's effectual calling. God called you and made you alive by his grace. God always unites his internal call. I should say God ordinarily. God unites his internal call to the external preaching of the gospel. We heard it tonight. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Faith, which is what Paul is talking about, comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we exalt Christ in our preaching, because men are converted as they hear about Christ, not because of any power in the man who's calling to repentance and faith, but because the power of Christ working in them and God calling men out of darkness into light. God calls men internally through the external call of the gospel preacher. It was for this he called you through our preaching of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. But in the second half of the verse, you see the, the kernel here. God calls men effectually to new life in order to restore them fully in Christ. This is why God calls people. It's really the inevitable result of salvation, finally, to glorify us with Christ. And you see, as I'm using these terms, how packed with truth and theology these verses are. God's purpose is to glorify you, Christian, by restoring you fully into his image, which is the image of Jesus. 
in the beginning, we're going to learn about this in VBS this week. God created them, male and female, in his image, and he called it all very good. And the whole story of the Bible is creation, fall. It's, it's marred. It's ruined. It's like somebody took a picture of your favorite person and scribbled all over it and drew mustaches on it. It's lost. But God's redeeming it. He's fixing it. He's restoring mankind back into his image. Good. And what does that image look like? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It looks like Jesus. That's God's purpose. And this this word, to the gaining or that you may gain, It's the idea of possessing or obtaining it. It really is yours, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, John 1.14, as John introduces the word that came in the flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. This is what Moses wanted to see, and he just caught a glimpse of it. But we, John, uh, John the apostle, if I said the Baptist, I mean John the evangelist, there were people who saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Jesus was like. He was full of grace and truth. This is what God is like. And what was the glory of his ministry? It was that he was humble, he condescended, he obeyed even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But after that, what was the glory that followed the grave? It was superabounding glory to heaven. This is the glory of the Savior. He's full of grace and truth and humility and condescension to sinners followed by glory you can't even imagine. It's glory in his person, glory in his career. And you gain that, Christian. It's really yours. It's yours now as you are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's going to be yours in the end. God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he did predestine, Then he also is working in. need to read the verse. I'm not recalling it all. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. He's going to finish the job. He started it. It's yours right now. He's going to finish it. It's going to be yours in the end. This is why God calls people to salvation. It's so that they will be like Jesus. Do you believe that that's God's purpose for you? I should clarify. This is only for those who are in Christ. There's a different kind of eternal outcome for those who are not. Salvation, all of God's grace, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you gain the glory that he has. This ought to fill us with with hope and with confidence about the future. 
And that kind of hope really should produce in you a commitment to seeing progress through your whole life for your own comfort and assurance that, yes, I am a child of God. I am right now being changed into Christ's image. You can have assurance of your salvation, assurance of that glory. That's God's intent for you. Remember, toward those who are his own, God is working all things for the great good of likeness to Christ, both now and in eternity. Your salvation has a perfect ending. Do you like, do you like mystery novels? Do you like good, good satisfying, wholesome endings to a, to a love story? Those are good endings, right? There's something in you that really wants justice or, or reconciliation or peace or receiving someone back. Salvation has a perfect ending. There's not a story that's been written that's going to be better than that one. It's guaranteed, and it's beautiful. Don't forget all the good God intends towards you if you are his beloved But Paul develops this in a final way, very quickly. When lies unsettle, this is the so what. Remember your salvation is grounded in revealed truth. I'm preaching a message from the Bible, but Paul kind of refers to the Bible. Okay, And he says, stand firmly in the truth because that's a solid foundation. Stand firm, he says. Plant your feet. Don't get knocked over but especially not just truth in general, cling tightly to the word since it's divine revelation. Paul has a certain self-consciousness here about what he told them. He knew that it was true because it was from God. Hold to it, grasp it, seize it, and don't let it go. And why am I calling it the word of God? Well, hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. This word is interesting. There's often a negative connotation to it in the New Testament. Jesus uses this word all over the Gospels, but when it's negative, it's always the traditions of men. You're substituting obedience to God for the traditions of men, he told the Pharisees. What is Paul saying? This is not the tradition of men. This is the tradition I gave to you from God. What Paul taught was not the traditions of men, but divine revelation from God. And as we've said, false doctrine, false bad eschatology cast doubt on salvation, truth. Paul kind of is implying the opposite here about what he's taught them. Because God has saved you and committed to us the good news about that, don't forsake what else we taught you because it sheds light on salvation truth. If they believed what was true about the end times, they would be in good stead to believe what was true about their salvation. Paul's not just talking about tradition for the sake of tradition, right? Tradition! That's not what we're talking about. He's talking about the word of God through God's men, God's messengers, which really... Now we have.
So do you cling to the word? Do you read the word? Do you saturate yourself on the word? That is the solid ground of the Christian life. If you're not, what are you standing on? On what could you stand firm? There is a sense in which what we do not actively grasp, we will slowly lose hold of. We tend to lose sight of what we don't work to retain. So aim for viewing the world through the lens of the Bible. Think think in scriptural terms about the situations of life. That will give you great stability. That will give you, that's really how you grow in maturity. It's as we see in the word, Christ unveiled, that we're changed into his image. There are lies in the world, brothers and sisters, that have you fearful about the future. Remember that God chose you to salvation. It really is a marvel, this gracious work of God. Not only that he did it, but that he gives us such assurance about the future. This is found in the sure word of God, perfectly recorded for us, preserved by his divine hand. The Bible is trustworthy. You can stake your life on it. And the beauty of all this, this, of this chapter, is that it's so simple. Paul takes a really basic truth to deal with an error they didn't really know how to deal with. You see that? Someone said, the day of the Lord is at hand. And Paul says, God chose you for salvation. It's really basic and stabilizing. This really is the spirit of the reformer Martin Luther when he was summoned to the Diet of Worms to recant his writings and his teachings before the Catholic hierarchy. When he was asked to recant all of what he had written without any distinction, he was kind of torn. There were many things those in the room would have agreed with him about that he had written in those books that were before him. There were many things he had written about the injustices his fellow Germans were suffering, which were still true, and he can't recant those, and still going on. But in the end, he found his conscience captive to the word of God. He was willing to be persuaded of his error. He said, maybe there are some things that I said a little bit too harshly. He's reported to have said this. Maybe there were things that I said in a wrong spirit, And I'd be willing to take those back. But they weren't giving him that option. They didn't want to hear this. They didn't want him to parse this out. They wanted to recant all of it. They wanted to be done with it. But he was willing to be persuaded of his error only on the grounds that he had been unscriptural in his teaching. And that was really the contention of the whole Reformation. And so in much that spirit, he said something like famously, my conscience is a prisoner of God's word. I cannot and will not recant for to disobey one's conscience is neither just nor safe god help me amen he was really being put to the test by people who knew a lot about doctrine and held firmly to their false doctrine and wanted him to do the same but his conscience was prisoner to the word of god he was captive to it he was bound to it 
and he would not come apart from it. He was holding on to it. He was seizing it. And his decision there was driven by the authority of the word in his life. He was under the word. Is that you? Is your conscience captive to the Bible? Maybe maybe not to be put on trial for. But when lies swirl and try to tangle you up, is it your absolute authoritative final benchmark? If you're a Christian, it's not just a feeling that makes you sure of it, but the very word of God revealed to you that will give you assurance of your salvation and confidence. God has spoken. He's revealed much about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. So stake your life on that and you will never be disappointed. You never will. And it will take a lot more than a false teaching to get you unsettled. May God help us to cling to his word and think on the salvation that we have through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do give us firm footing against error. We need maturity. Pray that we would be ministering to one another in love so that we're built up to maturity. I pray that we would be thinking on the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ so that we would be growing to maturity. Lord, this week, help us to be in the word and fellowshipping with you so that we can stand firm so that it can be well with our soul. There are many things in our lives that would disrupt us and throw us off kilter and unsettle us. Lord, may false teaching not be one of them. Encourage us in the truth tonight, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.